copy of God's Word. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 3, or we'll have it up here on the screen if you want to read along with us, or app, whatever you desire. And so, uh, and all, all jokes aside, we do take one week a month uh, to let our children, elementary children, stay with us. Uh, that's not because we're wanting to make our children uncomfortable or give them an unpleasant experience or anyone else or their parents. It really is because, and we may change this in the future, but at least for now, we think it's good to treat our kids as not a just sort of brainless, mindless, unable to attend and listen and learn from God's Word. We know that they uh, have different developmental capacities, and at the same time, we think, at least for now, that they can track and they can learn, and that it's good for us to worship with them, not only in our time of singing, but in time of Scripture. So if you're with us for the first time, we're going through the book of Ephesians. We're talking about what it means to understand the gospel, not only as individuals, but as the church as God's people. We're also thinking about what it means for us to understand the church and the gospel in terms of people who have been burnt out by the church. So we're talking a lot of, about some isms, we've said. We're talking about things like legalism, that we earn the love of God. We've talked about racism and the ways that we seek to divide up God's people based on ethnicity. We're talking about things like sentimentalism, where it's like sort of pie in the sky, you know, everybody's happy, everything's great. If you believe in Jesus, every day is just sweeter than the day before. And this morning, we're going to touch a little bit on something known as moralism, but we're really going to focus more on the antidote to moralism than we're going to focus even on the issue of moralism. And so Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, we see this amazing prayer that Paul prays for the church through the Spirit. So read along with me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Read that again. It's going to be important. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we ask you this morning the same things that Paul asked for these Ephesians. That we would be strengthened by your spirit in our inner being. That Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That we would have the strength to comprehend all together this morning the depth of the love of Jesus. And God, we do it not based on our ability, based on our powers, but based on who you are, what you have done for us in Christ, who you have made us through your spirit. And may you now, by the power of your word, take us deeper into your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Right? So if you're new here this morning, sometimes we think out loud. So this is how we're going to begin. Is have you ever experienced love in a way that changed you? Maybe in a way that surprised you. Who's willing to get a little vulnerable and maybe share that? Lauren? Parenting. That's a great example. Anybody, most people who've had a child, you're thinking, maybe I know what it, I, I, it's just the category change. Anybody else that can agree with Lauren on that, maybe? See some heads shaking. Who else? Somebody was about to say something over here, I think. Levi? Yeah, that's it. That's where we're going to go this morning. Anyone else maybe experience love in a way that was changing? Marriage. Marriage. Yeah. That's great. Who else? Abby? There's one consistent variable I think we see to all of these is that when love is experienced in a way that actually changes us, it is very personal. It is deeply personal. We're not talking about, no one in here said when I encountered the theory of quantum physics. You know, no one really in here, if they were honest, would say, I, I experienced a deep, transforming experience of love when I embraced a certain theory. No, love to be really life-changing, to be motivating, to touch us at the core of who we are, it has to be personal. So when we think about this word in conjunction to the deep love that changes us, we think of this word moralism. What moralism is, in distinction maybe even from legalism, legalism talking about we, we earn the love of God, we earn the acceptance of even the church, when we think about religious moralism, we're talking about the emphasis of proper behavior over a genuine and personal faith. So moralistic people are people who say what we do is where life is really found and who you really are over and against the centrality of a personal, life-changing, genuine faith union walked out with Christ. And so often we think that moralism will change people. If we just get the rules right. But rules will never change our hearts. Only relationship will change our hearts. Only relationship, a relationship with God that is experiencing the depth of His love will actually move us into the mission that God has called us into. That if we don't have a deep and abiding interior 
inner being we're going to see experience with the love of God, then that will never overflow into a genuine life of mission. And we have to realize as a church that's all about living out the mission of God is we can very easily slip into what is missional moralism, where we have all of the right structures, where we have all of the right plans, where we have all of the right documents, you know, our, our one, two, three, four, five, and we can lay out all of these things and we can, we can believe the lie. If we can just get all, everybody plugged in to doing the right things, then out will pop the accomplishment of the mission of God. But what we have to see is without the love of God, a deep and abiding experience of the love of God in our hearts, all we will produce is just more empty religious activity. The good news is, is that the love of God is deep. We sang about it this morning. Right? The, the ocean, if it was the ink that wrote out the love of God, is not sufficient to mine the depth of who God is. If we're going to experience this, we've got to passionately pursue it. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, what we have to pray for one another, what we have to pray for ourselves, is that we would have a passion to pursue deeper experiences of the love of God. So how do we do that? First thing is, is we have to acknowledge our need of a deeper experience of the love of God. If you don't acknowledge that, then you're not even going get, to get started in the journey that God is calling us to. So notice what Paul is doing here. He's praying for the Ephesians to know what they already know. I, I don't know if you caught that in there. He is praying that you would know what you know. He begins in verses 14 and 15. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Is named. For this reason, he's tying it back. If you weren't here last week, he's saying because of the great purpose of God that he would have a people from all nations, not just Jew, not just Gentile, but he would bring together these diverse ethnicities and they would love one another as family before a watching world, but also the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is saying, for this reason, that we serve that kind of God, who is that kind of Father, who has created that kind of family, I'm about to pray what I'm going to pray. Now this is not disconnected then. That if we're going to be the people of God who display the love of God through our love of one another, then we have got to have a deep experience of God's love in our own hearts. It's the only thing that will make this happen. So what will it take for a church to display the good news of God's love through their fellowship with one another to the world? Verse 16, it's going to take a work of the Spirit in our inner being. Notice again, that according to the riches of His glory, our Father's glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. There's a distinction being made. Paul is saying here, you can have a sort of outer being experience, or is he saying a surface level experience, without it touching deep into your inner being. That, he's talking about what the Bible speaks of elsewhere, and even in this text, as your heart. Not an organ pumping in your body, but the causal core of who you are. Not even just in the Bible when it's talking about the heart, is it talking about the seat of our emotions. It's talking about the seed of our affections, our desires, our wants, our beliefs. 
very, very challenging in our culture where most of us cannot go use the bathroom without our phones. Right? Let's just be honest. Right? We can't take five seconds of, of nothing. Right? We, any, any spare moment, right? Some of you probably right now are maybe having like twitching withdrawals, right? To just, you need to be on Instagram, right? You need to be on Facebook. You need to be on Twitter, right? It's like, I, I, I have to be. So this is a challenge because we are never going to experience an inner interior life of any type of depth if we cannot just be still. In a Facebook scroll culture, a tweet culture, we don't even want to read anything anymore, right? Like, you give me the bullet points or I'm done. Right? If an article, whoa, 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 I'm not, that's a paragraph, mind blown. Paul here is talking about something deeper. The spirit to strengthen us in our inner being. That's scary for some of us. We don't want to be alone with our inner being. But God wants to meet us there. It will also take a dwelling of Christ in our hearts, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, rooting and grounding us in his love. Again, this abiding relationship at the core of who we are, not just detached, but rooted and grounded. Again, not just a surface level relationship with Jesus, but something that's got roots, it's been cultivated. Verses 18 and 19, it will take a comprehension of the deep love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What Paul here does with these words challenges, again, that you would know what surpasses knowledge. That you would know what surpasses knowledge. What is he saying here? That there's a deep, intimate love. And in verse 19, if our minds aren't already blown, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that even mean? Could that even be filled with all the fullness of God? Could be nothing better than that. But it begs the question here for some of you in here who are, are, are thinking you're super maybe smarty people, and you're thinking, well, already have all those things in Christ. Doesn't the Bible already say that the Spirit of God indwells me? Yes, it does. Right? We could go to Romans 8, 9, and 10, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You, if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit of God indwelling in you. That Christ may dwell in our hearts. Does Christ not already dwell in our hearts through faith? Yes, we are His. He abides in us. Are we not already filled with the fullness of God? Go to Colossians chapter 2. It talks about how Christ is the fullness of God and how through faith in Him, that fullness is ours. So do we already have these things? Yes, we do already have these things. But what Paul is saying here is that these things would have all of us. As some person described it, it's one thing to have all your money in the bank. It's another thing to draw on that account. This is what, how many of us live. We have all of these things in Christ. The question is, are we drawing on that account? Are we experiencing what is ours? And 
do we believe we really need that? Paul believes so deeply that the church needs this. He is saying that if this does not happen in our hearts, we will not fulfill our purpose of displaying the manifold wisdom and glory of God to the world. One a medical doctor who was a, a great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he sort of explained it this way. He says, imagine a man and his little child are walking down the road, and they're walking hand in hand, and the child knows I'm a child of the Father. He knows the Father loves me. If you were to ask him on any given Tuesday, does your Father love you? Yes, he loves me. Right? Church, Christianity, 101. For God so loved the world, he loves me. He knows the Father loves him. He rejoices in that. He is happy in that. There's no uncertainty about it. But then Martin Lloyd-Jones says, but suddenly the Father moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child and picks him up, squeezes him in his arm, kisses him, embraces him, shows his love upon him. And then he puts the child back down and they go on their walk together. The child knew before that his father loved him and that he was his child. But oh, the joy, he says, of that embrace. The extra outpouring of love the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is what Paul is praying, that you would know what you know. Jonathan Edwards. I'm choosing here two super like intellectual people because I know there's some of you in here who are saying, well, that type of experience is for weak-minded people who are easily manipulated by emotion. So if Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones isn't enough for you, how about the person who many consider to be the greatest American intellectual in the history of America? Jonathan Edwards, writing a comprehensive book on the scientific nature of spiders at eight years old. Well, here's how, Jonathan, here's how God gave Jonathan Edwards an extraordinary experience of the glory of Christ. He wrote this in 1737. So you can't say, oh, he's been captured by modern American entertainment-driven Evangelicalism, 1737, he uses words like alighted. Having alighted my horse in a retired place, as my manner hath common been, to walk in divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that was for me extraordinary. I saw the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared, appeared ineffably excellent, with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and connection, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. He says, This kept me the greater part of this time in a flood of tears, and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of the soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated. I wanted to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love Him with a pure and holy love, to trust Him, to live upon Him, to serve Him, and to follow Him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. 
Now, Edward says this was an extraordinary experience. This wasn't what he experienced every day. But it was life-changing for the ordinary days. Some of you in here know what he's talking about. When the love of God becomes so real in your heart that nothing else in the world can compare. That you would give anything else in the world just to, just to experience it more deeply. And if you've not ever experienced that, we must pray this for each other. This is what I'm praying for you. This is what the Spirit is praying for you through God's Word. But we've got to believe we need it. We've got to want it. Was it a category for you? Do you think Jonathan Edwards is anti-intellectual? Or do you think, even more importantly, who cares about Jonathan Edwards? Do you think the Apostle Paul is anti-intellectual? Do you think God is anti-intellectual? Because he is calling you to pursue this deep experience of his love and joy. It should be a pursuit for us. We want more of the love of God. We want more of the power of God. We want more of the joy of God in our life. We need to not have this small view of God that we can sort of tap out all there is to know of his love in our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones, not to, to use him too much here, but he's, he's just good on this area. He talks about how someone came to him once and said, he asked them if, if they were a Christian, and they said yes, and he said, well, how, how, how do you... No, he said, do you know, how do you know you're a Christian? He's like, well, I'm trying. And so he said, well, I'm not quite sure you understand what the gospel means if you say you're trying. And so he explained it, and the person said, oh, okay, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. I just said it wrong. And he, he said he didn't doubt their salvation. But what he knew is that they really didn't know what they knew. Some of you in here this morning, starting with me, this week you thought, I am all alone in this world. You don't know what you know. Some of you thought this week, I'm abandoned. Nobody cares about me. Nobody sees me. You don't know what you know. Some of you this week or in your life, you thought, I've been broken and wounded beyond repair. There's nothing in this world that can change that, give me hope and joy and peace. We don't know what we know. And those things are all things I struggle with. You know, not to, to go off here on a tangent, but there's nothing more missional than this. If we are not motivated by the love of God, and if our mission is really not anything more or less than the overflow of the love of God, then what are we doing? We'll just be moralistic, little moralistic missional Christians out doing the right thing, and all we've got is our new little checklist of activities. Because God wants us to know how deep He loves us, and that transforms us so deeply in our core that we can weep together, we can laugh together, and we can love together. So how do we begin to get there? How do we fight for this? 
Well, not only do we have to acknowledge our need, but we have to align our lives for a deeper experience of God. And I believe Paul is, is modeling this for us in this prayer. First off, Paul is appealing to the word of the gospel. Verses 14 and 15, we'll go through them all for this sake, but he is, again, pointing back to the good news that God has revealed through his word and through Christ that he is restoring, reconciling, making all things new through the gospel. And then he's praying, so he appeals to the word. He appeals to a father who is listening. He believes that God is there, that he loves you, that if everyone else has abandoned you, that if you are alone, that he is there and he is listening and he wants you to seek him. He speaks of the heart. Notice Paul's target here is not to get us to pass a theology exam. God's target here is to have us know the love of God in our hearts, which is the ultimate passing, ironically, of knowing God. He depends on the Spirit. He's asking that the Spirit would strengthen us. He's trusting the power of love in verse 17, the love of Christ. And he's calling us to do this in connection not only as individuals but with communities. We could pass over this, but notice what he says, that we would know it with all the saints. Verse 18, you may have strength to comprehend the love of God with all the saints. So this isn't some sort of individualistic spirituality. This is a community experience, and Paul is calling us to align ourselves. Now, not to go too hillbilly on you here, but we are in the fall, right? So it's not only football season, but it's deer hunting season. Now, this is a horrible, if you're, if you're an aspiring preacher, why would I use this? Because I don't think anybody in here deer hunts. But track with me a second. All right, and you can get this. So let's say you're a deer watcher, all right? There, it really is, and I didn't grow up doing this, but I did it a few times. There, it really is pretty exciting when you're sitting out in the woods and nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden, this majestic and beautiful creature walks out. And it's like there. And you're like, wow. This is amazing. If you don't know anything about this, most of the time, that does not happen. People go not only deer season, but they go years sometimes before that happens. This is why it can be very frustrating for people at times who don't in learn to enjoy the process, who don't learn to enjoy all the time in between. But what I've always been told in regards to that is, you know what, however unlikely it might be that that experience may just happen when you go out there, guess how you can be assured it's not going to happen? By sitting at home on the couch. Like, you can guarantee yourself, I am not going to have this experience seeing this beautiful animal at home on the couch. Right? It's just not going to happen. This is the same it is with the deep experiences that we long for with God that Paul prays for here. Is guess what? It's not just going to happen. It's not going to just happen while you're scrolling on Instagram. It's not just going to happen while you're binge-watching another season on Netflix. And I don't think there's anything with either of those things. I, I, I do those things. But we just need to realize, like, it's, it's just not going to happen unless you align your life 
and put yourself in the pathway of the work of the Spirit through the Word of God, through seeking the presence of God in prayer, through depending on the Spirit of God, through trusting the love of God, and through doing that with others. Some of us are like, God, I'm here. I'd love to experience you. I'll give you 60 seconds. God, I'd love to experience you, but, you know, I tried that once, you know, for five minutes one day or that one week back when I was younger. George Mueller, give you another historic, historic example, a man known for seeing God work in great and powerful ways through prayer. He said this about how he cultivated this experience with God in his life. He said, the point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to tend to every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord. It was not even how much I might do things that glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man, inner being, might be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distress. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world. And yet, not being happy in the Lord, and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man, day by day, all this could happen without being attended to by a right spirit. This is powerful. This is not saying that every day you're just going to walk around happy clappy. No, if you're not usually a part of our church, we're usually a church that's more saying it's okay to lament and it's okay to grieve. But we need to be careful that we don't swing the pendulum too far because the gospel gives us the, the freedom to lament and the freedom to grieve, but it also calls us to enjoy God. To seek to be happy in the Lord and to not be ashamed by that. To want that. To be able, even in the seasons of grief, to say with Paul, I was sorrowful, yet rejoicing. There's certain Christian camps who want to tell us we've got to you know, do either one or the other. We either get to be the intellectual people or the experiential people. We either get to be the, the love of God people or the, the doctrine of God people. We either get to be the spirit-filled people of God or we get to be the, the heady people of God. And the, God's word just does not do that to us. And so how do we get up in the tree stand lane of God's love? If that makes any sense to you. Well, in the history of the church, there's been many ways that, that people have sought to do this. And I think we see these just all mirroring what Paul does here. The first thing is, is you've got to get in the Word of God. We're not talking about a spirituality that is devoid of truth. That is not biblical spirituality. That might be some type of Eastern mysticism or something. No, biblical experience of God is not divorced from the truth of God's Word. But you have to read it in view of the heart. You can't read God's Word like a textbook. You've got to read God's Word in view of your heart. Not for curiosity, not as a checklist. And this is why, if, if whether you're in what we call our fight clubs or not, you can get one of these uh, bookmarks back there. We have these questions. We ask, what is God saying? 
It's just your typical Bible study questions. But we also ask, who is God? Because we don't want to know about God. We want to know God. There's a big difference in the two, knowing about God and knowing God. So we ask, who is God? We ask, what has he done? And we ask a little further, what has he done in Christ so that we know the love of Christ? Who are we? Who am I? Because it's got to get personal. How has what God has said and who he is and what he's done changed me to the core of my identity? And only then what should I do? You see, historically, many people teach reading God's word in a very moralistic fashion. What does it say? What do I do? And just leave out the gospel of God's love. So this is why we encourage this way of reading God's word. Because that the love of God is stirred in our hearts. But then we not only need to read God's word, Latin fancy word, lectio, we've got to meditate on it. And what meditating on God's word really means is not only you come to God's word to read it, but you come to God's word to let it read you. Ask yourself, are you spending more time reading the word or are you letting the word read you? Are you asking that question that we asked? The next one is, why is the Spirit revealing this to me now? What does He want to show me about the brokenness in my life? What does He want to show me about sin or suffering? And then we pray. You want to experience this? You have to pray, but not just pray your grocery list of needs. Pray these truths that you're understanding about who God is and what He has done and who you are. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Again, if you grab one of these, we have it broken down into, into sections that will help you do that. And then we have to practice. Some of you would know this sort of follows our head, heart, hands, but we have to practice. We have to go live this. We have to suffer. Again, if this is going to be a personal experience of God's love, it's not just going to happen with you in your bedroom. It's going to happen with you in your life. Martin Luther, he divided into three ways using Latin words. Oratio, which is the reading. And the meditatio, the, the meditation. But then he added a third one that included prayer. Sinatio, I can't be how you say it. I'm a Latin expert. But it was trial. He said, if you want to read God's word accurately in a way that actually leads you into a deeper understanding and knowledge of who he is, then you have got to go out and suffer with the gospel as your guide. And we have to do it together. Notice again, comprehend with all the saints. And above all, we have to do it with Jesus at the center. Christless spirituality is no real spirituality. A spirituality that's just dependent on our performance will just leave you beat down, more full of guilt, more full of shame, and more full of fear. Most spiritualities that the world accepts and promotes, and spirituality is pretty in vogue, is just another form of a legalism where you earn your right to have peace in your heart. But the good news is that Jesus lived all of this prayer out perfectly for us. He's the one who has the perfect inner being. 
He's the one who knows not only the depths of the Father, He lives in perfect, eternal union with the Father. He's the one who sees us living our surface lives, settling for surface experiences of God. And He says, I'm going I'm to bear all the guilt and all the penalty that they deserve for believing that all of these other idols that they're giving all of this time to, thinking that's going to fill them with the fullness that they were created for with God, he took that upon himself on the cross. And he rises from the dead, and now he gives you his spirit so that he can welcome you into a better communion with God than anything that we could imagine. And so Paul ends with this appeal in verses 20 through 21. But the only way we will do this is not just by acknowledging our need and aligning our practices, but by believing in the power of God to actually do this. This is huge. Many of you in here, maybe you're thinking, I just can't even imagine that. Maybe you've not had an experience of love in your life that was deep and lifelong. Well, there's hope. Because God is able to do more than you can even ask or think. Maybe you don't even have that plausibility structure, that category in your head. It's okay. God's able to do that even beyond what you can ask or think. Why? Because God's spirit, his power is at work within us. Why? Because God's mission is to be glorified through the church forever. And there's no greater glory than God gives than when people experience his love, live out that love together, and bring that love to the world in his name. God wants you to know him deeply. He wants you to. And he's able to. Charles Spurgeon, if y'all think, man, it's bad listening to you preach for this long, these old-time preachers, right, they didn't just take a passage. They would take, like, who is able and write 2,000 words. Wait, that's not even a lot. They would do two hours, three words. And one time, here was his whole sermon from the parable of the prodigal son based on three words. He kissed him. I came across this this week, and this was just powerful to me. You know the parable of the prodigal son? The rebellious son runs away. Why? He's thinking, I'm going to fill myself with the things of the world. Father's love? Eh, been there, done that. I want to go get some real stuff from the world. He goes, ruins his life, loses all his money, and he comes back home. Spurgeon quotes someone else, and he says, If we had read that the father had kicked him, we would have not been very surprised. The son deserved all the rough treatment that some heartless men might have given him. And had the story been that of a selfish human father, only it might have been written as he was coming near, his father ran at him and kicked him. Right? Because here comes the dad, sees his son coming home, embarrassed the whole family, lost half the money. Here comes dad running. You can imagine some of you might have had dads like this, right? Here dad's running. Oh, I better duck. Right? Is that how you think of God? When you're full of sin and guilt and shame, better, I better not get too close to him. He's going to zap me. He's going to hit me. Or I'm going to look at him 
and I'm going to see, you know, maybe you had the father, he didn't hit you, but you just looked at his face and you could tell, I'm a disappointment in this family. Maybe it wasn't a father, maybe it was somebody else in your life. It says there are such fathers in the world who seem as if they cannot forgive. If he had kicked him, it would have been no more than he had deserved. But no, what is written in the book stands true for all time and for every sinner. He fell on his neck and kissed him. Kissed him eagerly. Kissed him much. Whether you feel that or not, some seasons we will and some we won't. This is what God wants you to know. This is his stance towards you. Whatever your stance towards him, however passionately or not passionately you're pursuing to have a deeper experiential knowledge of his love, God is passionate about having that experience with you. He wants it. He's able to do it. He's willing. He would not have sent his son to die for you and to make you his child if he wanted to keep you at arm's length. He would not have given you his spirit and adopted you so that your heart would cry out, Abba, Father, if now he wanted just to put you in the corner so that you could just be thankful you're going to be in heaven one day. No, the God of all creation loves you, and he's able. Even in the most dry personality here, all our experiences of God don't have to look the same, and we don't need to make this cookie cutter. But however you've pegged your personality, yes, you, whether you're the Marlboro man or the melancholy man, he wants you to experience his love, and he's able to do that even through your personality. You in here this morning who've been really wounded by life, who can't, you just don't even know if you can trust anybody. You don't want to get close to anybody. You're so full of guilt, fear, and shame. God is able to give you a deep experience of love. And he's able to do that for us together as the church. For his glory. And for the good of his kingdom. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. And we pray now as we come to your table that it would not be an empty religious experience, but that we would taste and see your love. And we ask you, God, you would help us to know what we know. In Jesus' name, amen.